ahead for Berchi, trying to go in alone. Sven Berchi had his stick left to be scored anyway. From center ice now, Nachushkin barreling his way into the zone. Backhand shot, he scores! Oh my goodness! Holy smokes! What hands! He went top shelf to beat Marvel! You're listening to a Canucks Army podcast coming at you pre-taped from Mom's Basement. Hey, Ma! Can we get some meatloaf? The meatloaf! We want it now! Now, welcome the hosts of the show, Jeremy Davis and Joseph Dylan Burke. Hi, and welcome to what I believe is the fifth episode of the Canucks Harmony Podcast. I will be one of your hosts today. I'm J.D. Burke, the managing editor of Canucks Army, and I'm glad to be joined by a fellow Canucks Army staff member, esteemed writer and developer of the Prospects Graduation Probability System, Jeremy Davis. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. That was that was a wonderful intro. Thank you. That was a mouthful. That was. <laughs> took a while to get that all out there, but... Uh, yeah, it's, it's cool to be back on the air. We took about a two-week hiatus. Um, I guess you were having that, that whole life thing, right? Well, uh, you know, they were doing some renovations to the uh, Canucks Army Studios, so take some time off. Ah, that explains that. Okay. Yeah, the big uh, downtown basement suite. Nice, nice. Okay, that explains that then. It just the, the timing is a little unfortunate though because it forced us to take a break during like the two single most formative days <laughs> of of like roster composition in the entire league, which I guess would start with the draft and then free agency. Yeah, a couple of small topics there. We hopefully we can uh, get enough juice out of those two areas to fill forty five minutes of space. I would like to think we've got more than. And 45 minutes worth even. I think I might be facetious. Yeah. Well, you'll have to forgive me for not catching on. What a day. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I guess we'll delve into the draft. I'll, I'll let you take the floor, though, man. We haven't had a Jeremy Davis article in a while, so so you go ahead and give us your take on the Canucks draft. Oh, yeah. Look, I've, I haven't been around much lately, have I? Not nope. into publishing. I'm doing a lot of research and development, if anyone was wondering or caring. So uh, the articles will come fast and furious. I have about, hmm, you can see the back end of the site, four, I think. Yeah, that sounds about right. They're going to basically shoot out in rapid succession at some point. They're all draft-related. We call that beaching. Yeah. <laughs> it, you know what, uh, small tangent, are you uh, familiar with Mitch Hedberg, the late comic? No. No, I can't say I am. You used to have a joke where he'd say he wishes that he could crimp the uh, cord in his microphone and tell a whole bunch of jokes and then he'd unfurl it and all the jokes would come out at the same time you know like a hose mm-hmm. does that make sense yeah, yeah that's basically you. what i'm doing with my article writing i'm compiling them and they're all just going to shoot out in rapid succession feast or famine baby so anyways um the canucks had a draft yep olio levy olio levy hey he's not so bad I don't know. I, I'm fine with the pick. Like, it's it's not the pick I would have made, 
But uh, my general rule is that if it's a reasonable pick, don't complain. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, it's, it's that simple. Like, uh, draft is so subjective. I mean, I don't even think Yo Levy is the best defenseman in his class, but enough people do, and there's enough evidence to suggest that he's worth being considered in that range that I'm okay with this. Oh, I know you're high on the Sergachev train. Oh, he managed to stay on the board till ninth, and and poor old Jacob Chikrin, who was right up there in the top, he owned that conversation for the majority of the year, ends up going what fourteenth, sixteenth, sixteenth. Yeah, man. Yeah, I, I didn't. But it was John Chaka that, that jumped up and grabbed him. So that always makes me think that uh, we're missing something. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, because Jacob picked Clayton Keller. Yep. Seventh overall, and we're all like, that's a that's a savvy pick. Yes, it is. I love that pick. So if he's jumping up to pick Chikrin, I don't know, maybe he does good things that we don't know about in terms of whatever it is that Statley's tracks. I mean, I don't know. It's kind of interesting. People, like, we operate under the assumption, and, and rightfully so, based on the research, sorry, the research we have available to us, that... Um, reaching or sorry not reaching but jumping up in the draft carries a slight probabilistic disadvantage as to po- as opposed to trading back with regards to both uh, how many nhlers you'll secure and the quality of those nhlers but it was interesting to see john chaika uh move up to get chicken because that flies in the face of all the work that's been done in the draft analytics community and uh of course you, you hear in the media that he's a big analytics guy and it, I, I like it if for no other reason than it shows that, you know, many of us don't just use analytics as this monolithic um, go-to for every decision we ever have to make. <laughs> Pretty good, yeah. And I remember reading something on him um, just before the draft talking about how, of course, he's an analytics-based fella, but he's not afraid to go with his gut. And uh, he shouldn't be either. I mean, just because someone is uh, leaning towards analytics in terms of their, uh, you know, what they're known for, he's obviously watched a whole lot of hockey over the past, well, his lifetime basically. But especially, you know, since athletes has come around, and I mean, his job for a long time was watching hockey games. These people that track games for a living, you don't think they pick up on things, right? Well, totally. It was one of the. I mean, like I had my own tracking project, and it was it was the biggest benefit of it all. Like I could tell you, uh, I learned so much about systems play throughout the league. Really started to put together, you know, what teams were trying to accomplish in which zone, and and I don't know, it's just a great way to train your eye. It's it's the best side effect to tracking. Okay, so back to uh, Ole Uolevi, or at least back to the fifth overall pick. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do remember and. I think there's a bit of the perception thing there with Jim Benning that whenever he is about to announce a name, there's like a feeling of dread that he's going to do something wrong. And and I'm like, like nicer towards this regime than most people are, or maybe like at least most people at our website. Uh, but there's still that feeling that's like, oh, what if it's like something out left field or something, or you know? And uh, when he, I was expecting to hear Matthew Kachuk, and when he said. Actually, what he said was, you know, from the London Knights. And I'm like, oh, right, Kachuk, of course. And then he said, oh, yeah, Levy, because I momentarily forgot that they play on the same team. But and there was a bit of a feeling, a bit of a letdown there. And it's not 
so much that it was Yolevi over Kachuk. I think I was just still so devastated by what happened at number three. Yeah. When uh, Dubois went off the table. And I mean, at that point, I'm like, oh, well, no matter who they get, at best, it's going to be my second choice. Yeah. I mean, like, tell me if you think this is really drastic because I. I've, I've brought this up to other people, and they, they kind of uh, recoil when they hear it. But if you look at this rebuild on the fly in four years and ask yourself what one moment was the death knell of the rebuild on the fly, for me, that moment will be the Columbus Blue Jackets taking Pierre-Luc Dubois because there is still nobody in the Canucks system that is a succession plan to Henrik Sedin. And you can't win without a great center. I'm sorry, you can't. So, yeah, I, I'm with you. I was devastated. I hear your argument. I hear your mouth. I understand it. But I would postulate that if you're going to go in that direction, the death knell would be when that card flipped over and we found out that we were picking at five. Yeah, true enough. Right? True enough. As opposed to three, two, one, where you're guaranteed... You know, Matthews at one. If you're at uh, three or four, you're guaranteed to get Dubois if you choose to take him. If you wanted one of the best centers available, I mean, the point where we found out we were going at five, that was really it. Yeah, you could definitely make that case. It, it might even be more more accurate. But for me, the, the, the one dynamic that changes things is that the Blue Jackets made the wrong pick. <laughs> like... They they went off the board, right? Like there is still reason to believe that Dubois could maybe be available at five. Yeah. Well, I mean, if the Blue Jackets had done what people expected them to do, uh, at least a few weeks before the draft, and that would be before all that uh, other drama came out about Kekalainen and Pugliarvi, they expected Pugliarvi to go there. And there was a large expectation that uh, Edmonton might take Matthew Kachuk. Mm-hmm. He's their type of player. He's what they're looking for. And then, you know, it was, it was so obvious how it was going to play out once Dubois went at three. You know they're not going to pass on Paul Yarby at four. So we get our pick between the two London Knights at five. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, if they want to pick someone else, then they could have. But I'm okay with it. You know, I'm, I'm real good at... Uh, making myself feel better about things like this after a while and, and getting into a more positive mindset about things. And, you know, some people call it denial. <laughs> I like to call it optimism. So, I, you know, I like looking at our, uh, our prospect pool and seeing that we have a blue chip prospect in three different areas. We have one at forward, we have one on defense, and we have one in net. That makes me feel good. It's not the prime forward position. Brock Besser playing on the wing as opposed to center. You know, you finally have a blue chip defensive prospect. So, hooray! Yeah, I mean, like I've got, I've got time for that argument. And frankly, like if you ask me, who do I think is more, more likely to grow into a first role? Which, and by that I mean first pairing or first line. If you were to compare, say, Matthew Kachuk or or Ole Uolevi, and for me, the answer is Ole Uolevi. Yeah. So, in that sense, yeah, I'm, I'm happy with the pick. I also am happy getting a defenseman over a winger, if uh, all else was equal, in terms of you know, value. Mm-hmm. Right? Would uh, you have taken Uolevi, though? Oh, I don't know. I agonized over this. I don't know what I would have done. 
I think I had an idea at the time. I think I, at the time I was thinking I'd probably pick a Chuck. Mm-hmm. But I've managed to uh, convince myself that at this point that maybe Yolevi was the smarter choice because of his position. Or at least maybe saying defenseman was the smarter choice if you want to go up Sergachev. Then there's an argument for that, although, you know, Sergachev at five would probably in the public sphere constitute more of a reach than Yolevi at five. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Despite the fact that there's plenty of people that think that Sergachev is the top defenseman. And that, you know, this whole thing is subjective anyway, so we don't really know until uh they hit the NHL and we see what they can do. So, you know, hashtag wait and see. Know who I would have taken? Sergachev? Clayton Keller. Clayton Keller. Clayton Keller. I uh, I had a mock draft with uh, the Bloggers Tribune where I took Sergachev, but... At I've, five, I've, right? Yep, at five, and I've totally come around to Keller, though. And it sounds silly, but just knowing that he was 5'10 instead of 5'8, uh, it, it really did. It made a huge difference for me. I'd already been considering him there in that range, maybe, but finding out that he was just that little bit taller, it actually made a difference. And that's going to sound silly to a lot of people, but... But it's realistic. It does make it... I mean, you can be like, I prioritize skill over size and blah, blah, blah. And you can go with that uh, narrative all you want, and that's the new way of doing things. But you still need some size. Oh, totally. There's a reason why a guy like Matthew Phillips fell to, what, round five, six, seven? Uh, It was like either five or six. Because he's five foot six, right? Like, what are you supposed to do with that? You can have skill for days, but I mean, you have to be like an elite talent to pull to pull off anything in a body that size. It's just the way that it is. You're playing against men. I'm not trying to be old school or anything like that, but small people get thrown around unless they have exceptional talent. Uh, it's true. I mean, I don't know. It's the one example I always go back to, and it's going to sound like agonizingly Canucks, but the one example for me is always going to be. Uh, Steve Freya. (laughs) There was a guy who had all the talent in the world and just, you know, you'd you'd get him in in space and, you know, maybe he could get by you with his speed, but as soon as you got him on the half wall or anywhere near the boards, if you breathed hard enough on him, he'd cough up the puck. Yeah, and that's just so much of the game is played that way now. Mm -hmm. Right? You have to be able to survive on the wall, even as a centerman a lot of the time. But... In terms of Clayton Keller, I, I think he, and even if he was 5'8", I'd be pretty confident in him, but certainly 5'10". And it's not just about the how many inches tall you are and stuff like that. It's also about your, your build and the structure of your body and stuff like that and how uh, how the muscles hang off your bones, so to speak. The more muscle mass that you can put on, because you can have two guys who are 5'10", and they can be able to support different amounts of muscle on their body, depending on the build of their skeleton. We're going to get into the kinesiology of sport. Right. Because if I know anything about that, I don't. Yeah, I, I don't. I, I assumed you did. I was just, like, totally drawing a blank there. Well, I took a kinesiology <laughs> course in the university, so... Oh, that's a start. That basically qualifies me to know what the word kinesiology means. This was, like, seven, eight, nine years ago, so... Anyways. Oh, those VO2 max tests that they do at the combine, I did one of those in that class. That's my memory of it. It was horrible. Those don't look fun. No, they're not. Those do not look fun. Well, uh, let's let's get back on 
to the I'm draft tra- here. Is there anything else that you, do you want to jump straight to the next or the uh, next Canucks pick, or do you want to examine some of the stuff that happened in between? There was a lot of really bizarre stuff, and of course, a lot of it fell let's, at Boston's do doorstep. Like uh, Trent Frederick, like what the? F- <laughs> they just can't help themselves. Like, yeah. why do they have to make one terrible pick a year in the first round? You know what's uh, really funny? You know, I guess one terrible pick is better than three. Yeah. Especially because yeah. he had two choices. He made a good pick with the first one, Charlie McAvoy. Yeah, that's a boy. Local uh, playing, at least. Uh, it's a fine pick at 14. Of course, that just reminds me that Jake Bean and Charlie McAvoy both went before Jacob Chikrin. Which is really crazy just in terms of another small tangent here, but thinking of going into last season, the the uh, preliminary rankings and seeing Jacob Chikrin normally up there at either two or three, so it would be Austin Matthews and then one of Pugliarvi and Chikrin. That would be the, the consensus top three a year ago now. Mm-hmm. And then it kind of makes you wonder if you're looking at the 2017 draft board right now, and there is a consensus uh, top three or four or five, and just wondering, you know, what the hell is going to happen to these guys over the next year. You might have a guy who is supposed to go in the top three or four, and he could end up at 16. You just don't know. Yeah, could be could be Yamamoto or, or Patrick next year. Womp, womp, womp. Actually, Yamamoto, because I've been, as one of those things, uh, one of those articles that I'm going to pump out is a, is a 2017 preliminary preview. And Kyler Yamamoto is, like, not even in the top 10 in most rankings anymore. Really? Yeah. He's I'm, just hovering I'm around, sleeping. like, 13, 14. Yeah. Well, I know I was expecting him to be there when I checked, you know, six months ago. He was right there. He's gone. Huh. Nolan Patrick's your your top dog. Timothy Lilligren. Lilligren. Yeah. Gabe Velarde. Oh, Tippett. Comtois. Milstad. Tolvin. Okay. We'll get to that much later on. Back to the one that already happened. Which, Trent Frederick. You know what's funny, though? Is the Boston, uh, the Boston Bruins, there was a beat writer. I think it was Joe Haggerty or, or something like that. I don't know. One of those guys. They, there was like somebody who um, transcribed one of their articles where they they're interviewing the Bruins, uh, either Don Sweeney or a member of their their scouting staff, and they they point out they being the Bruins, they point out that they know full well that Trent Frederick could never be anything more than a third liner, and they know that they reached for him at twenty nine, but they like him. I don't know. The Trent Frederick one is just so confounding. Like, I, I can't believe there are people in the NHL that still think that way. Yeah, and their next pick was 49. I think they got it right at 49 when they went with Lindgren. Yeah, that's a, a much more stable bet for sure. Yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a lot of um, you know there's science to drafting and and uh, the Canucks talked about this a lot too. Judd Brackett, their new um, head scout was talking about this, and I think we heard it from Benning as well, that they took a slightly different approach this year in terms of drafting, where they, in terms of like the late-round picks, they really keyed in on certain players and tried to know as much as they could about them and uh, or, or try to find players that had a really defining aspect that could give them success and, and help them 
get to the next level, whether that be uh, the AHL or the NHL. And then they would establish who those players were that they really liked, and then they would hope that uh, one of them would be there when it was their turn to pick. Uh, and I think there's there are other teams that, that try to do it the same way. It's not always just about picking your next favorite uh, player on your board, or, or maybe it is in a way. But there's a lot of consideration as far as when your next pick is. And in terms of the Trent Frederick one, they're thinking they know this is a bad pick at 29, but we don't think he's going to be there at 49. I mean, the thing is, Trent Frederick, I'm sure, probably been there at 49. He should have been there at 49. <laughs> yeah. And then um, and, um, the Canucks make a similar argument when they pick Will Lockwood. Oh. That's a 64. And uh, surely Will Lockwood would have still been there at 94, but they traded 94 away. And, I mean, maybe he'd still be there at 124, but they traded that away too. So they didn't pick again until 140. So I guess uh, their thought process is they really, really, really want this guy and they don't think he's going to be there at 140, you know. They don't pick again for, geez, nearly 80 selections, so they want to get their guy. That's the best way that I can explain their thought process, and that doesn't mean that it's a, a good one, but that's what I've gathered from their explanations. I don't know. It's so silly, though. It's like such an arcane way of thinking, like, get this idea that... Um... I don't know, this is just going to sound so statsy, but you get the idea that there's something unique about about player X that makes him more valuable that somebody's, than somebody who's better. But it's like, no, the, the name of the game is add wins to your lineup. Right. So it's like, no, it's not acceptable to take a guy that you know is a reach, a guy that you know is a third-line center, like, at best. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know. People still think in the strangest way yeah. to me. And, and the same goes for Lockwood. That was a that was a horrible pick. Yeah, that was a fair. horrible pick. He was the 11th highest scoring. I'm glad you brought up Lockwood because now I'm now I'm about to go off. Oh, you go. He was the 11th highest scoring draft eligible or younger player on his junior team. It's a good team, to be fair. <laughs> yes, it, it is. It's USNTDP, but but still, you know, I I can't wrap my head around the pick. I just can't. I mean, we used your PGPS uh, system to check out the likelihood that he ever makes it to the NHL, and I think he showed us having a 0% chance with over 200 comparable players. Yeah. Uh, I have revamped that a little bit, because as I mentioned, I've been doing some research and development, and, and that just means I'm, you know, I'm constantly trying to uh, find ways to update the database with more accurate stats, because there are some flaws in the Elite Prospects database, which is where I get all of my historical information, as well as uh, I'm always fidgeting with different weights and formulas and then using that to compare it against, uh, you know, using older samples to judge new samples and then see how that compares to real life and stuff like that and running statistical analysis on it and all that fancy stuff. So I do change things up a little. and But my latest... Uh, latest and greatest version is, is still only showing, I think, like a 1.8% chance of success. I mean, someone's got to do that, be that 1.8, I guess, and that's 
But if if you were to to say this is more um, hypothetical and academic, as we say, if you were looking at a, two prospects on the board, and and according to my system, uh, the the one that we use, not that the Canucks would be using it, one has a sixty percent chance of success, and one has a twenty percent chance of success. We would suggest that you go with the guy that has the higher chance of success, based on how we've run the system, which is, you know, production, and, and the production can be looked at in various ways. It's not always just points. Um, sometimes it's goals created and uh, team points percentage and other things like that, and as well as stature, you know, height and age and that kind of stuff, and, and all of what we know about prospect success rates based on those variables. So we punch out a number, and our suggestion would be to take the higher one. Of course, we are basement bloggers, right? So we don't know any better. There are going to be flaws in that reasoning from time to time because we don't have the opportunity, like people who pay millions of dollars a year for scouting services or scouting staff, we don't have the ability to go and see the players. And there's going to be times when the player with the maybe the lower probability uh, in terms of PGBS actually has a higher probability of success for some other reason. If you have some sort of inside track, inside knowledge as to what that reason might be, then it could be advantageous in those circumstances to take the guy with the lower statistical likelihood. Is any of this making sense? Uh, I get what you're saying. I do. I'm rambling a lot. Well, like, I don't know. I'm I'm picking up on what you're laying down. I, I don't know if I'm agreeing with it, though. Fair, yeah. Like, I think there's intuitive sense that the guy who is... Uh, scoring a third of a point per game, playing against people uh, his age or younger, you know, doesn't have a really significant shot of making the NHL. I mean, it's intuitive. Sure. If you if you can't dominate in lower tiers against younger competition, why why should I expect you to even hold your own in the NHL? Absolutely, and that makes sense. My point is more about. There's context in every situation, and we know this because we can look at an NHL player, and we have so much data surrounding that player that we can make judgments that are very minute about how they they play their game, and we can see uh, a guy like Brian Bickle or David Clarkson or something who scores a lot of goals, or, or maybe a more recent example, um, say like Lance Boma or Yuri Hoodler, that, uh, the year that Calgary made the playoffs. Um, they Last went, year, you know, <laughs> right? Well, the the yeah, not this uh, year, yeah, this finish, but the the year before, that whole team went on a shooting percentage bender, right? It's not obvious to uh, certain people in the Calgary media or in the mainstream media at large, but it is obvious to people who are more in tune with um, the fancy stats, as we say it, and not like shooting percentage is fancy at all. It's just like. You look at their shooting percentage and what, it's 19 or 20 percent. They can't possibly carry that over the course of their career. It's going to regress. We can make those judgments with NHL players. We can't do that with a guy who is playing in the OHL or I guess we could because we know a little, we have their shot numbers and stuff like that. But lower leagues, we can't always make those kind of determinations. And there's other stuff going on too, like and I'm not saying that I know any of this has happened, but if he's scoring at um, you know 0.33 points per game, and as a member of the national development team, if there's something else that was going on 
like a nagging injury or something like that or some sort of deployment issues that were preventing him or maybe he had a very low shooting percentage. Stuff like that would not show up in my numbers because I'm looking at points, goals, assists, games, team goals, that kind of thing. That's how I'm making all of my judgments. I don't have the ability or the resources to be comparing, I don't know, 80,000 players, which is roughly what I'm looking at for a single season or something like that of, of every league in the world and look at all these minute details for every single player, right? I'm looking at basic things. And again, I'm not saying that's what happened in this case, but in some cases, if you know that there's a reason that the guy is scoring at 0.33 points instead of 0.66 points, then there's a little bit more wiggle room there. And in Lockwood's case, for whatever reason, his... Like his US, his his numbers against the USHL were terrible, mm-hmm. right? But he had better results against when uh, the national team played against NCAA teams, which is kind of counterintuitive given the age ranges. And he had his best results at the U18 tournament, right? Playing against his peers, he was a point per game. That's I mean that's impressive. And okay, when you put it in that context, your your point makes. Um... It makes more sense to me. Yeah, I think I just need to flesh it out a bit more. I'm just saying they they still know that uh, like scoring more points is the best way of predicting success. It's better than any other method. But if they are aware of something that is holding a player back who should be scoring more points but isn't, and you think this is a temporary problem, there's a little bit of wiggle room to suggest that he might be better than my model is saying he is. Right, right. Okay, that's fair. I mean, another thing, too, that, that I think um, should be brought up is that maybe Benning is, has earned the benefit of the doubt after the Adam Gaudet selection. Yes. Because that's, that's a comparative selection from last year's draft that I would make to this one. I would say Will Lockwood is the second coming of Adam Gaudet. Or at least we hope that's what, what happens in the... Yeah. the first year of his development within the Canucks system. Because Gaudet was another player who just looked like, you know, a, a wasted draft pick. And he's looking pretty good. Yeah, he was actually phenomenal in the second half of the season. Yeah, which, yeah, I mean, I hate to be that guy, which it kind of does make you wonder. I mean, surely percentages were holding him back in the first half, but, I mean, you'd have to imagine that percentages were also kind of at work in the second too, so you kind of wonder, you know, where where reality lies, right? Yeah, that's fair. And, and with um, when we're talking about prospects, we're this kind of actually goes in a different direction than what you were saying. But there's a lot to be said for adjustments in terms of going from the USHL to the NCAA, right? There's yeah. a lot of players that start slow. I mean, not Brock Besser because he's a stud. But, uh, you know, most players who weren't drafted in the third round or the first round are going to start a bit slow when they, you know, have a bump up in competition. Uh, so it would make sense that he starts off pretty slowly, and he certainly picked it up by the end, and there's probably some shooting percentages involved there. I mean, he scored a whole ton of goals in a short period of time, right around Christmas and January and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um but by all accounts, he, he looked good in other areas of the game as well. And he ended up the best freshman on his team, Northeastern University. 
Uh, let me check because I actually have some of those numbers fairly close at hand. I don't know. I, I, I think he's a bit of a spark plug. That's the word I always use to describe Goddard. Yeah. So he scored 25 points in his final 23 games of the season. <laughs> right, which, <laughs> I mean... Uh, that doesn't even align with like what your most optimistic observer would would even be able to fathom for Gadet. Right. That that makes no sense. We were ex- we were expecting something similar to how we started the year, which uh, I don't have that written down, but you know, under point three points per game or something. It, it was it was low. He ended up with a over the course of his season point seven three, and that put him eleventh among freshmen. Right. If if he had, I mean, he gets 25 points in his last 23 games. That that pace, if he had sustained it over the course of an entire season, would have been up in the top four or five. Like I don't have the chart in front of me, but I think it's like Kyle Connor, um, Brock Besser, Max Latunov, and Adam Goddard. If he were to sustain that over the course of a season, he did. Right. Uh, but 23 games is not necessarily a small sample size either. Like, if you're scoring like eight points in six games, you're like, okay, that's that's nice. You had a couple of good weekends, but uh, over the course of half an entire season to be scoring at that pace, it, it's it's pretty impressive. Yeah, I would tend to agree. Eh, certainly not unimpressive. <laughs> yeah, it's not that. No, I, I just, you know, I worry about this draft, and I'm writing an article on this right now with, between Lockwood and all their late-round picks. Uh, and, you know, we hope Lockwood is going gonna, is gonna to spring into being that next Adam Goddard that we were just talking about there. Don't you worry that this draft's going to be the one that's defined by the players they didn't take? It's like 65th overall, right after Lockwood, Vitaly Abramov. I had him in my top 20. Right. Um, was their next pick Cole Candela? Okay, that's a fine pick, no complaints. Right. But then they take uh, Jacob Stuckel. <sighs> you know, it's the summer of the overagers. There, there was Oscar Steen on the board. There was Matthew Phillips. There was Philip Larson. Uh, Sokolov was still on the board. You know, I believe Otto Sampi was. Uh, the Rodrigo Ebels is another one where you just most of those names I just fired off were still available. That that might be the most egregious to me. Rodrigo Ebels. They, they could have signed him. Right. Was, yeah. He was this twenty year old. He wouldn't have re-entered the draft. No. If my He's understanding done. of the CBA is correct, he would not have re-entered the draft. No, this was his his third and final draft eligible season little bit of CBA stuff there. If he hadn't come over to Portland this year, he would have been available again next year, similar to Anatoly Goloshev. Um, right. But he didn't. He played in Portland this year in the CHL, so uh, this was his final draft-eligible season. He, I mean, they literally had to wait for another 17 picks to go by. And then they could have signed him on the way out the door. I mean, you're so afraid that Rodrigo Apple's going to get picked in the last 17 spots that you want to take him as opposed to taking, like, Ty Ronning, right? Yeah, Ty Ronning or, or David Quinville. Sure, yeah, and, and I'm going to ride the Ty Ronning train as far as that will take me because I have the soft spot for the Ronning family, you know, from all the memories I have. But there's, there's plenty of other options. There's plenty of other 17, 18-year-old options. 
pick a 20 year old in that spot when he's going to be a free agent in like half an hour <laughs> it's just I don't get that uh, and it wasn't even like he like it's not even the same like Goloshev or something where you know he's not going to make it to the end of the draft so sure you wait till the fourth or fifth round but then you just you got to take him like who cares if Apples gets picked at 210th and you miss out on him like he he did not have a good year no. He's no, I... well under a point per game as a 20-year-old in the WHL. It's, that's not good. You know who would have made more sense if they were going to go that route with the uh, Young Stars tournament uh, holdovers, you know, people they were familiar with? Yeah. If they had Pete to. Gardner. Yep, that's where I was going. Yeah. <laughs> like, it, it would be it would be another bad pick, but... I wouldn't like that pick, but I'd like it more than Rodrigo Apples. For sure. Gardner had a fantastic year, and I still hope they sign him. Uh, as we speak, he's actually at development camp with the Pittsburgh Penguins. I checked oh. up on that today. So I've seen some Penguin fans lobbying to get him signed because he could go straight to the HL. He'd play with Wilkes-Barre Scranton next year if that was the case. I thought they should have signed him. They could have signed him last year. Right, right. That's, that is correct. Because there, there are, there's some overlap between when players can be signed and when they can be drafted again. Uh, he, he was a free agent this entire year, I believe. I think I had written that because of his age, and again yes. because of where he played. He was North American trained as opposed to Abel. So they're basically the same age. I think they both have January birthdays in the same year, and Apples was not eligible to be signed because this was his first year in North America. Man, the CBA is just a... It's so weird. <laughs> if I don't have the thing in front of me and I haven't done my research, then I'm always worried about uh, reporting on it because there's always a decent chance that I could come off sounding like an idiot. There's been a couple times where I've been... Like reading something in an article and being like, that's wrong. What are you doing? And then like rip my own article saying like this person was wrong. And then I find out later that they were actually right. And I'm wrong because yeah. of some wording somewhere that's happened. The CBA is just like, if you want to give yourself a concussion through literature, go for it. Yeah. Because <laughs> you know? it just makes no other. sense. It takes up a, it's a two inch binder, 520 or so pages. Jeez. That's bonkers. In case you want to do some light bedtime reading. Anyways, uh, their last pick of the 2016 draft, 194th overall, Brett McKenzie. Uh, who cares? Yeah, I like. I, I don't hate that pick to be honest with you. Like, I I think in my write up I said they extracted value beyond what they might expect reasonably from a pick in that range based on our probability system. Right. And so in that that's context, kinda, that's a guy you can pick at 194 and be okay with that. You know who the Canucks are probably devastated wasn't available to them in the seventh round? Who? Connor Bleakley. Well, where where did Connor Bleakley go? Didn't he go on like round three? Five. Five. He went fifth round to the um, to the St. Louis Blues. Uh, little known fact in the Canucks world is that rumor has it. Jim Benning wanted to take Connor Bleakley instead of Jared McCann in the 2014 draft. And he was very, very upset when uh, Connor Bleakley was taken, I believe, one or two picks ahead of McCann. 
So that's uh, that's word on the street. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, I can't see him lasting to the seventh round. I mean, he went at one forty-four. The Canucks had three picks after that. They picked right before that. Would you? Cole Candela. Yeah, what say you? Cole Candela versus Connor Bleakley. Uh, I would rather take Candela. Younger. Shot offensive defenseman. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, that's the thing about the draft, or, or even like roster construction period. Like as you get closer to a player's peak, the room for them to, to break out and maybe, maybe become something beyond what you could reasonably expect diminishes. It's just a fact of life. It's aging. So if you look at Connor Bleakley and you go, well, he's 20 years old. He's just re-entered the draft. And sure, maybe he has a better chance of developing into a fourth liner, maybe third liner. You know, how much is that moving the needle? Whereas Candela has a small chance of being an NHL defenseman, period. But he's young enough that there's like that big glimmer of hope that he might become something um, bigger, bigger than that. So I, I always go with upside. Especially I, I given where the Canucks are. Candela has a ceiling as a top four, the number three, number four offensive right shot defenseman. That's fair. As his, uh, as his ceiling. He's yeah. a good looking pick. And he was injured for a good chunk of the year. And that accounts, I think, for a lot of why he ended up going at 140th. He was injured yeah. relatively early in the year. And I think that, uh, that did affect, uh, even when he was back in the lineup, it affected his ability to produce at points, and he still had a massive jump in production in terms of points per game from his uh, draft minus one season to his draft season, uh, which is what you like to see. You like to see progress. Yep, and it's also worth noting that the Hamilton Bulldogs were not a good team. <laughs> no. Not a good team at all. Uh, quite a terrible team. So the fact that he could do that on a... Very poor side in the OHL is is impressive in and of itself. Yes. And there you have Cole Candela. There you go, Cole Candela. So that is your entire 2016 draft class. Yeah, I, w- I would say so. Yeah. Well, yeah, I wouldn't two say pretty good looking. Well, one really good looking defenseman mm-hmm. in Oleo Levy. Apparently, might be one of the smartest players picked in the past few years. I read that somewhere. Yeah, Smart he- player. He reads the game well. I, I can dig that. Shane Malloy had like just a pile of good things to say about him, and that always makes me feel good because I trust the hell out of Shane Malloy's opinion. As do I. So and uh, Ray Ferraro as well. Uh, I like Ray Ferraro's opinion, probably tops of eighty or ninety percent of the time. He has good opinions, mm-hmm. and he knows these guys. He does the uh, the World Juniors every year, so. He watches the he, some. You wouldn't think a lot of these like mainstream TSN guys really know what they're talking about when it comes to prospects, but Ferrero does. He's your um, color analyst at every World Junior game for the past decade or whatever. So he had lots of good things to say about Oli Levy too. So between those two guys, spewing positive feedback in terms of him makes me feel better. And I don't mean better as in, like, I'm disappointed about Kachuk, because I, I don't really even care anymore. It's, it's the one that's still keeping me up at night. Mm. 